So I'm invited into, you know, to give a keynote at something or speak in a community, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, people know, okay, I'm speaking about gender equality or I'm speaking about ending violence against women or whatever the theme is. And I just see, you know, there's a, a bunch of men come into the room and maybe they've been sort of, quote, dragged in by their wife or maybe it's a company affair and they're just, it's just happening and they happen to be there. And those men come in and they sit down towards the back. Their arms are crossed. They lean away from me because they just figure gender equality, violence against women. They just think I'm going to crap on them for the next hour or whatever my talk is. And instead, I talk about the ways that men also get hurt within this male-dominated society. I talk about the goodness of men. I talk about the positive role that men can play in supporting change. I talk about the fact that most men don't act in violent ways. And I talk about these things, and I watch those men with their arms crossed, and I watch as they uncross their arms, and their arms drop to their sides, and then they lean forward, and very, you know, very subtly, so their buddy doesn't notice, they start nodding in agreement, because what's happening at that second is he is hearing something that he figured he was the only guy on the planet that felt. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Michael Kaufman traces the contemporary movement for gender equality back to the women's suffrage efforts in the late 19th century. But only since the 1980s have men started to join the cause in large numbers. His international white ribbon campaign has been raising awareness about violence against women since 1991. And his latest book, The Time Has Come, Why Men Must Join the Gender Equality Revolution, is bringing the message to a new generation. In this Hack the Process interview, Michael tells us why this issue motivated him to make it the focus of his career, how he invested his own straight white male privilege to promote the cause, and what every man needs to understand about feminism and gender equality. So today I'm talking with Michael Kaufman, and he's the author of a new book called The Time Has Come, Why Men Must Join the Gender Equality Revolution. Michael, how are you doing today? Great to be with you. Good. I'm really glad to see you, and I'm glad to have a chance to chat with you. Now, this book, it's targeted at men, but it's about the gender equality revolution. And I think that's an, always an interesting thing for people to think about, that gender equality is not just about women. Well, that's right. You know, I, I certainly talk a lot in the book about why men must support women's rights. It's the right thing to do. We do it out of love and caring for the women in our lives. And we also do it for the many women we'll never meet. I think most men, by far the overwhelming majority of men, are in favor, are in support of gender equality, feel strongly that no woman should be experiencing violence in a relationship, are really interested in a whole range of things, you know, workplaces that are free of sexual harassment. It's a long list. So I, I talk about those things in a, in a very accessible way, in a way that isn't, you know, wagging a finger at men or pointing. This isn't about collective blame. It's really, you could say, about collective love for the women in our lives. But one of the things I do in, in The Time Has Come, which I think surprises many people, is not only do I say that men should support and really are supporting 
the gender equality revolution because it's important to the women in the world. But I say that it's also important to us as men. In fact, I say that feminism, believe it or not, is the best thing that ever happened to men. And one big example of that, and I think that so many men, particularly younger men, are feeling, is an extraordinary transformation that is happening all around us. And that is a transformation of fatherhood. You know, when my kids were young, if I couldn't do something, go out, go to a meeting, whatever, someone might say, oh, you're babysitting tonight, or, oh, you're helping out with the kids. That was just normal to say things like that. If I were to say to a young dad now, oh, you're babysitting or helping out, I mean, he'd want to kill me. He'd say, I don't help out. I'm a father. I'm a parent. This is the job. This is an amazing change in men's lives in the course of one or two generations. Now, the reason that transformation of fatherhood is happening is because of women's reentry into the workforce. It's because women have pressured men, pushed men to do our half of the care work, our half of housework. And so you'd think, oh, this is just a burden. This is more work. Well, it, it is a burden. It is more work. But I think most men would say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. So this is an, just one example of why the gender equality revolution is actually a good thing for men as well as women. And that is just one example, but I'm sure there are so many different ways that this affects people of both genders. And I was wondering if you were going to bring up the F word, feminism, and how that relates to the work you're doing. Because, I, I mean, in the title of your book, you could have used the term feminism, but instead you use gender equality. I'm curious about that. When we were searching around for a book title, and I can tell you, David, it is easier to write a book than come up with a title. You know, we were trying to come up with something that really captured a broad range of things. And Yes, you know, I'm out there as a, a man who supports feminism, for sure. I don't shy away from that. At the same time, I wanted to say in the title that this is about very much about men and men's experiences and men's lives. You know, one of the reasons why the gender equality revolution, why feminism is good for men, is from birth. You and I are raised with a set of expectations that we can't possibly live up to. You know, it's not just that we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to always be strong. We're supposed to be in control, powerful, have all the answers, never back down, show no fear, show no emotions. You know, the list goes on and on. And of course, all the while being, you know, looking like a Calvin Klein underwear model. Now, of course, Dave, you and I fit all of those things perfectly. But, you know, let's face it. These are impossible things. What we do, our culture does, is we set boys and men up for failure. You know, by saying you've got to be all those things, oh, you've got to be a bread earner, you've, you know, all this stuff, we really do set men and boys up for failure. And the reason why I can say that, not just as a, you know, idea, but we can demonstrate that, you know, men are more likely to be addicted to alcohol and other drugs. These are coping mechanisms. Men are less likely to ask for help because it's not a manly thing to do. One result of that is we die younger because we don't get help. We don't get emotional support. Men are more likely to commit suicide, more likely to be in prison. It's a long and nasty list. Now, that's not because of women, all those. We can say, sure, in a male-dominated society, men have controlled the world, we've made more money, the list goes on and on. But the strange thing is that men pay a price for the ways we have defined manhood. So the gender equality revolution really holds out to men. I think feminism holds out to men this incredible promise of change, a promise of a life free of set of expectations, which we just can't live up to. You know, just think of one thing, this idea that we're supposed to be the breadwinner, the bread earner. 
Well, what happens to the man who's out of work, who's laid off, who's, you know, your factory moves somewhere else? Not only is it absolutely crappy financially, but it's devastating emotionally, partly because you've put your whole identity as a man into that. Now, obviously, it still brings in a whole other level of the type of society and economy that we live with. But what I'm saying is that this set of expectations is enormously harmful to men. It feels to me like that's something that's actually been true now for hundreds, if not thousands of years, as society has been evolving in a patriarchal way. I'm curious why now is a time when in the media, in conversation and in your book, people are starting to talk more about the impact of what people have started to term toxic masculinity on men. Yeah, you, you're right. It goes way back. I mean, you know, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son to prove that he was he had faith. I mean, talk about toxic. Uh, sure, I'll kill my kid just to prove I, you know, I'm loyal to God. You know, we've had these weird images and weird expectations from the start. It's not new. I think what is new is that women have said enough. Women have said, no, it doesn't work for us. We're not going to go along with it any longer. And that goes back, I'm sure, in pockets here and there for millennia, but it really goes back in an organized way to the suffragette movement a little over 100 years ago, 120, 30, 40 years ago. And it's really accelerated in the last generation or two, starting in the late 1960s. So women said enough. And so there was this global protest against not just the, it's not just against individual men. I mean, when I hear some people saying, oh, feminists are man haters. I actually think it's the opposite. I think most, you know, I think feminist women have enormous faith in the capacity of men to be caring, loving, wonderful humans. Otherwise, why would they imagine change is possible? But women have certainly pushed men and challenged men. And I think that's been the, the, the crux of change. There's been this massive challenge to men in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our governments, in our places of worship. It's all around us. And I think what's happening is that men are responding. And yeah, men are responding in different ways. I mean, I'd be naive to think otherwise, but I think most men are responding in a really positive way. You've actively taken up this cause for yourself and gone out and you've been doing work with the G7 nation in Brazil. I'm curious what stimulated all of the interest in you in particular, because not everybody feels as passionately or takes as strong a stance as you have. For me, the really defining moments I guess this is true for everyone, came in, in, in childhood. And I grew up in a family, I grew up in uh, Ohio and then North Carolina, and then my family moved back to Canada where I now live. And it was you know pretty typical 1950s, 60s family in the sense dad went out to work, mom worked in the home as a housewife with you know five kids. But there was an assumption of equality. There was an assumption that my four sisters would have careers just like I did, which wasn't usual at that time. So there was this sort of background, you know, and, and you know, my, my, both my mom and dad were wonderful, loving human beings. And so I certainly had a strong model of both strength and nurturing and loving from both of my parents. But if, you know, the thing that really made a difference and just propelled my life in the direction it took wasn't about relations between women and men. What really propelled me was the civil rights movement. When we moved to North Carolina from Cleveland, so this is 1960, the heart of segregation. And, you know, we arrive there and suddenly I'm in this very different world. And my parents had a rule and the rule was pretty simple. They said, we don't go to places that are segregated. We're white, but we didn't go to any places that were segregated. 
And so as a little kid, I'm thinking, why can't I go to the movies with my friends? And they made it really clear. They said, as long as everyone can't go to that theater, we're not going to go to that theater. And certainly, you know, I got experiences of being picked on, being beat up even for my views as a, as a little kid. And what it did is it, it really taught me that we've got to take sides. We've got to take sides in human rights struggles. We've got to take sides when our morality is on the line. It's not good enough just to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's important. That, in, you know, in that case, that we have civil rights and segregation. How are we part of that? How do we, are we part of different systems? And so, in a way, it became logical when I hit university in the late 60s, early 70s. Women I knew were all feminists. The women's movement was starting. I certainly felt in support of that. And, and just, you know, the, the amazing, just, well, amazing is the only word I can think of. Women that I, I knew and met with and loved and was involved with were certainly feminists. But it wasn't until, gosh, probably 79 or 80 that... And this is a real moment when we see the power of other people on our lives. So I was doing, you know, I'd all supported feminism and women's rights, but I didn't really think it had much to do with me. You know, sure, I didn't say sexist things and so on, but it really wasn't about me as a man, or so I thought. So I was doing some training. I was, at this time, I was a PhD student. I was just starting to teach university part-time. And I did some training in upstate New York in peer counseling. And just, you know, how to do, how to do counseling, not really full-blown therapy, but I was interested in this. So I'm at this week-long training thing, and they announced at the beginning, we're going to have a men's group every morning. And I'm thinking, a what? A men's group? You know, we were half men, half women at this training. Why would we be sitting around as men talking? So I go to this first meeting early in the morning before everything else started, and I look around at the other men. And I just, I, you know, I instantly tag them. I peg, oh, this guy's a, a jock, this guy, oh, he looks like a stockbroker, he's a what this, he's a that. And I felt deep down that I was just totally different than all of them. Because I had felt that from a young age, you know, yeah, I could do all the right stuff. I could, you know, play football and basketball and baseball and drive the car and have the girlfriends and all that stuff. But deep down, I felt it was a bit of a sham. Deep down, I felt I wasn't living up to these armor-plated expectations of manhood. But I felt alone in that. I thought I must be the only guy around who felt those things. So I looked at these other men, one, you know, this really confident-looking athlete, this guy, that guy, and I thought, man, I'm all alone here. But here's what happened. As soon as we each started talking, everyone said the same thing. Everyone started questioning these ideas of manhood. And it was, this, it was my light bulb moment. And it was a moment that could only have happened along with other men, not just being told something, but really deeply experiencing something. And that was, you know, because some people had organized a training workshop on peer counseling and decided, hey, let's have a men's group as part of that. And that set off a process for me where I began to lead some men's discussion groups. When I got back to Toronto, I started doing writing and research. I'd finished my PhD by the mid early 80s on, on another topic, but I got more and more interested in, in writing and research, and then soon after in speaking and doing advocacy work on gender equality issues. So it sounds like the timing of your exposure to this men's group and your opportunity to start doing this peer counseling with men's groups, it seems it's date coincident with things like the, the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment and the emergence of the men's movement and like Robert Bly and Iron John and all of that. 
Yeah, I mean, some of that that some of your listeners may remember, you know, Iron John and Robert Bly, the poet, writing about this stuff. It came a few years later, actually. That was that was really sort of the late '80s, early '90s. But there was a lot happening. You're absolutely right. There were different in different places, both in North America, but in pockets around the world. There were men's groups organizing, men's discussion groups. Some clearly there to support women's rights. Some bringing together diverse men, racially diverse, diverse in terms of our sexual orientation. You know, so creating different spaces for men to be together as men. For some, and this is your reference to Robert Bly, there was something called the mythopoetic men's movement. Their images that they were famous for of being out drumming in the woods. There's a lot of stuff happening. You know, some of it just just playful and fun. Some oriented towards political action. But it was a time of amazing ferment in terms of these ideas of beginning to reshape our ideals of manhood. It seems like you know a fertile landscape in which to to start working in this area.、Um, not everybody gets drawn to it the way that you did, though. And I'm curious how you made the transition from the work you were doing into really making it a focus of your career. In part, it was one thing leading to another. The PhD that I was completing was in political science. I was doing PhD on political, social, economic change in Jamaica. So this is a was a far cry from that, really. I got really interested in, in these issues because it was about my life. I wasn't just studying what someone else was doing or living or trying to create, but something that just felt like this is about me. This is about what's happening in my life, and I knew it was happening in the lives of many of of the men around me. So it, it had a really strong personal quality, and I think one of the things that for so many of us that leads to important changes and important moves that we make is when we find something, whatever it may be, that's not only interesting. That's important in itself. Something that's just intellectually engaging and stimulating, or just plain cool, or artistically engaging, or something that we just think, hey, this is you know, this is a nice pathway to being monetarily comfortable. But finding something that really connects to who we are, and even more importantly, who we want to be—you know—I think we all have moments when we can make choices where we could say, "Well, yeah, I guess if I chose that, I could make more money if I did that." But more and more men and women are making choices that, yeah, we've yeah, we've got to earn a living, we've got to do well. It's tough out there, but at the same time, a lot of people are making decisions that are based on, you know, what's going to be true to our values, what's going to Really allow us to be the human being that we want to be, and luckily I had the opportunities to do that. And I say luckily because I think we all carry both baggage, but also forms of privilege and possibility. And I was lucky. I had, you know, I had a middle class background. I was teaching supposedly part time, but as a part time teacher at university, I was, actually, I was actually teaching a double course load just to make a living. But I was, you know, financially, I was getting by okay. I just started a family, but that wasn't, you know, too burdensome. I wasn't burdened by the impact of racism, so you know, I had a lot of things going on my side. So yeah, it was chance, but it was also, you know, privileges that I enjoyed as as a man, as a white man, as a straight white man. I had a lot on my side that made a lot of things possible. And it sounds like you took those privileges and you invested them in this cause that you felt was important and and worth investing your time and energy into. And I know a lot of my listeners also they feel that there are things that are very important to them that they would love to be able to invest their time and energy in. I'm curious because you've done a lot of work internationally, and I made a passing reference to it earlier. Can you tell me a little bit about what steps you took to go from I've got this idea that I'd like to do this into actually making it into a reality? 
I wrote my first book about men and gender equality. Well, this wasn't even men and gender equality. It was about men and masculinity. I think it was published in 1987. And coming out of that, I started getting invited to speak at you know, a few conferences. They were, at that time, in Canada, where I, where I do live. And then it was one thing leading to another. I got more and more interested in this. I ended up, in 1991, co-founding a campaign called the White Ribbon Campaign. And this was in the days, I should add, before there were ribbons for every imaginable thing. We started this the same year as the more famous Red Ribbon for AIDS started. But we started thinking this was just, you know, the small little effort, three of us men sitting around a kitchen table. And it was focused on men speaking out against violence against women. And we knew that the vast majority of men do not commit violence against women. We do not hit women. We don't commit sexual assault. We don't sexually harass but the problem really was, in many ways still is, that the majority of men have been silent about the violence. And through our silence, we allowed the violence to continue. So we came up with this, this idea of using the white ribbon, not just as a symbol, but as a personal pledge not to commit, condone, or remain silent about violence against women. And it instantly spread across Canada because of the impact of the women's movement and women's organizing. Within a month, we figured at least 100,000 men took part. We had no, I mean, we had no organization. This was, you know, out of, as I say, out of our living rooms and kitchens and dining rooms. And we went on to, you know, to establish an organization. But we, we stayed true to this one principle that we weren't trying to build a big organizational infrastructure or much of any organizational infrastructure. We wanted to be a decentralized campaign because we felt very strongly that people in their own communities and workplaces and places of worship and schools and, and countries knew best how to reach the men and boys around them. And this started spreading around the world, and I think it's spread to 80 or 90 countries now. Some countries, there's, there's just pockets in the U.S. There's a campaign in Massachusetts and different campuses here and there. But in some countries, it's a huge national campaign, like in Australia. It's a really big deal. That is just amazing. And this all started spreading from a few guys getting together and discussing an idea to 100,000 people to an international campaign. Did this start before the advent of social media? It did. I mean, to get things going, I remember uh, I, I did have a fax machine in my, my office, which at the time was in my dining room. We wanted to get some momentum going. So we decided let's reach out to some you know men right across the social spectrum, across the political spectrum, you know, men who define themselves as liberal, socialists, middle of the road, conservative, and say, let's speak with one voice against violence against women. It's quite extraordinary. Well, to do that, it meant, you know, trying to track down people's phone numbers, fax numbers. It was quite wild. You know, we were getting messages back, you know, the phone would ring and you'd pick it up and go, someone would say, hi, this is Donald Sutherland. Did you call me? You know, and so we we're getting this sort of thing. And we got, you know, an amazing group of men to sign on. So it was tough. I mean, it was word of mouth. It spread because people heard about it and talked about it and just spread the word. But this was, I mean, not only was it pre-social media, it was at a time when most people didn't have email. They didn't have access to the web. I mean, the World Wide Web was actually just starting at the time. It's amazing. It's such a different landscape we're in these days. But getting something to go essentially viral before the concept of viral even existed. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, it's remarkable. Picking that apart slightly, it sounds like you started with a book that you wrote and then some speaking engagements based on the book. And I'm guessing that you met the people that you organized this through those speaking engagements, perhaps? 
The original people were people here in Toronto who were, one was a city councillor who, when we started White Ribbon, actually he was busy running for mayor. And so we, we lost him for a, a few weeks when he, or a couple months when he was running for mayor. And we were lucky he lost actually, because he got very involved in what we were doing afterwards. He went on to become a, a national politician of a lot of fame here in Canada. But yeah, it's just, it was through social networks and hearing about each other. You know, I think what it's about is having a, the, the impact of organizing. I mean, the fact we were doing it was because of the efforts of women, but it was also because there were a lot of men, even by then, by 1991, who were saying, yeah, I believe in inequality, I believe in women's rights, I believe that violence against women is a problem, but I don't know what to do about it. And that's really what we were doing was saying, okay, here's one thing we as men can do about it. But of course, there's many other things. There's not only speaking out against things, but very much speaking for things. A lot of the work that my colleagues and I around the world have been doing since then have been in issues around, well, around the transformation of fatherhood, both encouraging men through social campaigns, through education, through father's groups, through changes in parental leave to do our half of the care work. There's been really positive campaigns around men's health. So an incredible amount of stuff. And it just shows that things are changing and they're changing in many good ways. And one of the reasons why I wrote this new book, The Time Has Come, is I really wanted to bring these ideas to a big swath of men and I wanted to make them accessible. You know, my early books were more academic. Not that, you know, there's nothing wrong with an academic book, but let's face it, most of us aren't going to pick up a heavy academic tome and cuddle into it on a you know, cold winter night with a beer and, or you know, hot chocolate in our hand. So I wanted to write something that was fun and accessible, that spoke the language we speak, that told stories, that really brought issues of gender equality and these paradoxes in men's lives. I wanted to just bring it alive and make it something that men would talk about, would make their own, but also that would be a good book for women to read. You know, women who are trying to figure out, how can I better engage the men and boys around me? What's happening? What's going on in the lives of my son? my husband, my boyfriend, my male boss. So trying to write a book that would be really accessible to all. That's an interesting challenge because it's, you know, it's a very different style of writing from the way that you wrote before. I'm curious what you did to prepare yourself for working in this different way. Here's a story about what prepared me to work in this different way. So it was the late 80s. I just started, because of my book, being invited to give talks here and there. I'd given a talk at a university, and I can't even remember where it was. I think it was somewhere in the U.S., somewhere. That's, that makes it pretty broad, but I just can't remember. But they, they called me a year later and said, can you come back and talk again? My brain was still an academic brain. So I said, well, if they invited me back, there must have been some things I talked about they liked. So I, you know, I said, so are there things I talked about that, that were, you, know, you want me to talk about again? I was expecting them to say, oh, talk about the theory of this or your analysis of that. That's not what they said. They said, tell that story again about whatever it was. And I realized that so much of the way that most of us learn is through storytelling. Because stories bring things alive. They make it alive. And I think for many of us, I mean, I'm a big fiction reader. I love reading stories. I also write fiction. I've got two novels published and a third on its way. And, you know, I love that storytelling and I realized that, you know, I had disconnected storytelling from my own academic life. And so in a way, it became really natural to not just say, I'm going to tell you the theory of patriarchy, but I'm going to tell you a story about when my son was born. I'm going to tell you a story that some guy or some woman told me. 
And it makes the theory come alive. It makes it real. It makes it part of our lives. It makes it something we can relate to, not just an idea that floats around, but our experiences. It's, it's kind of rare to meet somebody, I think, who's done both academic writing and novel writing, to be able to mesh those two together. <laughs> if I had my druthers these days, which I do, I love popular writing, accessible writing. I, you know, I love fiction, you know, writing novels. It's you know, like being in this waking dream to write fiction. It's interesting when we think about academic writing. If you read academic writing from, you know, earlier in, in the one, well, early in the last century, the century before, I'm not saying it's all easy to read, but it's a lot of it is more accessible than current academic writing. You know, we've developed a style in, in academia of, I think, being a bit more obscure than we need to. I mean, it's true that there's specialized language that, you know, we as we dig deeper, things become more complicated. But I also think that there's ways that we've made things less accessible to most people. And I don't think that's a good way to teach or to learn or to communicate. I wonder if some of that has to do with the way that publishing has been evolving, and it's been increasingly compartmentalizing different types of writing into separate categories. And I'm kind of optimistic now that maybe the fact that there's so much self-publishing happening might help break down some of those categories. Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But man, you would hope so. You know, you know when you think back, you're right, because when you think back at sort of the 19th century scientists, I mean, they were doing everything, right? They were tinkering and everything. Now, and, and so then as the scientific world evolved and specialized, of course, that had to happen. I think we, you know, we've developed these sort of separate boxes and languages. And you're right, you know, maybe with, you know, both self-publishing, but you think of what the internet does and just this, you wonder about something and suddenly you're clicking on websites to understand how rocket propulsion works or, you know, what vaccines do or whatever it might be. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to look into rocket science, in other words. And that's a pretty exciting thing. It's true. And even in those fields of advanced engineering, I, I work with coaching a lot of engineers these days. And the buzzword in career development is about creating T-shaped careers now so that you're not siloed as a single focus where you have a specialization, but you also have the T-shape, the broad background that allows you to see things from a wide variety of perspectives in order to bring that right mind, left mind integration into the work that you do. It's a very good image. And I like that that T-shape because what popped into my mind right away was both this broad scope, which I certainly part of who I am, and which means I waste way too much time, you know, surfing the web when I looking, just finding things and learning things, which is fun. But but the other, you know, the image that popped in my mind when you said that of a person with his or her arms stretched out. And what you do is you're opening yourself up to the world. You're reaching out to those around you. You're, you're creating communities. You're linking up with others. You're creating partnerships. And so that, that image of, of a T-shaped existence is pretty cool, isn't it? Well, it sounds like you're kind of exemplifying that, going from fiction writing to academic writing and now kind of integrating the two so that your ideas come across in a more accessible way. I hope so. I'm really curious how the work that you've done, you and your colleagues have done for that matter, has been received by the contemporary women's movement and how it is seen from the perspective of women supporting women, men supporting women. Is it an outsider view? I'm curious what the reaction's been like. I started doing this work back in the 80s and it was a pretty odd thing to be doing. <laughs> and, but, you know, in general, women were supportive. When I sort of moved more into sort of this a public role and starting things like White Ribbon, there was a response in the 90s into the 2000s by some women of, you know, why bother? Are men going to change? You know, are you wasting your time? 
Some women were suspicious. You know, are you just trying to grab headlines? Some women were very supportive. But there was a worry that, you know, working to engage men on these issues was going to take scarce resources away from women. You know, if you said, we're going to do a big campaign and we need support for it to reach men about violence against women, women trying to run a shelter or a helpline were saying, oh, man, is this going to take money from us? Well, one of the things that we said is rather than worrying about how we're going to divide the pie, let's bake a bigger pie. And the way to bake a bigger pie in these issues is actually to engage men. Because let's face it, men still run the budgets of our companies, of our governments, of our places of worship. Disproportionately, it's men in control of these things. And so if we bring men in as allies with women, what's going to start happening, and it did happen, is suddenly there's going to be more support for new laws, new resources, and so forth. And so one of the things that has happened, and it's just an amazing change over the past 10 years, really, we've gone from, you know, maybe a bit of questioning or even suspicion of those of us men who are active on these issues to a sense among most women I meet who are active in women's rights groups, who work in the United Nations and different governments, non-governmental organizations in corporations. The, the chant, as it were, that I'm hearing over and over again is we've got to figure out ways to reach men. Women are on side. Women are supporting change by and large. Obviously, not everyone, but by and large, we've got to figure out ways to successfully engage men as allies and also be working with men to support ch positive changes in men's lives. You know, I've worked now in about 50 countries, and this is what I'm hearing over and over again. A few years ago, almost all of my work was, you know, with the UN, with governments, with NGOs, in universities, high schools. One of the things that's happening increasingly now is I'm getting invitations from corporations, from trade unions, saying, we need you here, we need this here, because we've got big changes going on. And they're saying, you know, millennial men, not just millennial women, you know, want something very different. They're, they're growing up in a different world. And the old boys network just isn't, isn't cutting it anymore. So the response that, that I'm getting, by and large, from women is not, not why are you doing this, but it's about time that this is happening. But women are also saying, and, and I think it has to be clear for men too, that this is not about men taking over. This isn't about men saying, okay, yep, gl glad you raised these issues of inequality and women's rights and men's lives. We'll look after things now. I mean, this is not what we're doing. We are certainly there as partners, as allies for change. But we're also understanding, and this is something that's really, really important, we're also understanding that a male-dominated society is not only a society of the power of men as a whole over women as a whole, but it's also a hierarchy among men. You know, there's, there's men out there who don't have much power because of their socioeconomic class or the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their religion or where they were born or the way they speak, in my case, the way they speak English. So, you know, it's also a hierarchy among men. And so one of the things that is so important that we do, those of us who say, yeah, let's support gender equality and women's rights, is really understanding it's not a level playing field among men. We also have to really be thinking of solidarity among men. We have to think about how we can improve and better the lives of men. In other words, this is a really positive message for my brothers. There's not an ounce of male bashing in anything I say. There's only, I think, a deep appreciation of the strength, the capability, the wonderment, the talents of my brothers. And I think for most men, a sense of, of goodwill and supporting change. 
It sounds like an argument like that is a strong wedge that can open up the dialogue among men who might not otherwise have even considered issues around gender equality. And when they see the impact that what you're talking about has had on their own lives within the structure of the male-dominated society, it might open up their thinking to recognizing that this affects broadly people that are not men. You know, it's so interesting you say that because often when, and this may be a story I tell in the book, I can't remember, but often when I'm speaking to an audience, so I'm invited into, you know, to give a keynote at something or speak in a community, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, people know, okay, I'm speaking about gender equality or I'm speaking about ending violence against women or whatever the theme is. And I just see, you know, there's a, a bunch of men come into the room and maybe they've been sort of, quote, dragged in by their wife or maybe it's a company affair and they're just, it's just happening and they happen to be there. And those men come in and they sit down towards the back. Their arms are crossed. They lean away from me because they just figure gender equality, violence against women. They just think I'm going to crap on them for the next hour or whatever my talk is. And instead, I talk about the ways that men also get hurt within this male-dominated society. I talk about the goodness of men. I talk about the positive role that men can play in supporting change. I talk about the fact that most men don't act in violent ways. And I talk about these things, and I watch those men with their arms crossed, and I watch as they uncross their arms, and their arms drop to their sides, and then they lean forward, and very, you know, very subtly, so their buddy doesn't notice, they start nodding in agreement, because what's happening at that second is he is hearing something that he figured he was the only guy on the planet that felt. Just like in that group that I told you about when I was getting trained to be a peer counselor, I thought I was alone, and suddenly these men men from all walks of life, you know, rich and poor and black and white and straight and gay and however you might define us, hear stuff that you think, yeah, that's me. I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only man who just couldn't live up to all the nonsense and crap. I was the only man who worried about, you know, making it as a man. And suddenly you discover this whole world opening up. And those men come to me at the end of a talk and they just, you know, they don't make a big deal out of it, but they just walk by quickly and they just say, thank you. And they go on. Giving live presentations is a wonderful way to get direct feedback from your audience and your potential audience about how they're responding to the work you're doing. I'm curious, is that the only way that you get feedback these days about your work? And how has that changed over the years? Well, you're right. I mean, I do love the speaking in groups. I mean, it's fun. You know, you're entertaining a crowd. You're trying to connect with people. So there is definitely that. And then, you know, meeting with people afterwards. And often when I'm brought in by a company or a public sector organization, I won't just speak. I'll meet with people. But boy, has it changed as well. I constantly get emails, of course, with, with requests. You know, what do you think of this? And I try to answer. I'm, I'm you know, increasingly, it gets increasingly difficult to, to do that. But I at least write a note back. But there's, you know, of course, social media, and I, I spend a fair bit of time on, on Twitter, you know, Facebook postings, LinkedIn, and using those to connect with people, of course, using it to talk about what I'm up to, but also using it to um, pass on information, ideas. So it becomes quite amazing. I mean, because you hear one thing one day, and then, you know, someone passes something along, you go, oh, boy, that's what really happened. You know, so for example, you know, maybe a while ago when, when some of your listeners listened to this, but, you know, in January of, of this year, 2019, Gillette did this ad that just basically talked to men about the example that we're providing to boys and to younger men. And there was a big storm in the media and there was all these, you know, this flood of negative reactions on Twitter. And so there was an initial perception that this freaked out most men and they were against it. Well, what came out afterwards 
was opinion polls and, and studies by those who study the impact of advertising. And it turned out that overwhelmingly men and women were supportive of these ads. Well, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been following different people on Twitter who then tweeted articles that had these studies. So those connections, I think, can be really important. They can also be overwhelming. It takes up a lot of time. You can just drown in it. And, you know, I think that for all of us, we just have to find some balance so we're not just drowning in the world of, of social media, but using it, as a, using it as a tool and a vehicle, trying not to overdo the self-promotional side of it. I think it's a, it's a, it's a tough call because, you know, I, along with many others, not everyone, but with many others, certainly who are writing and speaking, I'll do things that, that talk about, there's a book launch here and I'm speaking there and Here's my new book. I hope you will, you know, read it and like it and buy it. So there's that self-promotional stuff. But I think, you know, I see a lot of people really crossing a line. It can get obnoxious. You know, people making proclamations about, I saw someone who had posted a message about his book who said, this wasn't quoting anyone, he just said, this is one of the greatest books, you know, of the year. <laughs> well, maybe it is or maybe it isn't, but it's not up to you to decide. Or, you know, someone who's 22 saying, I'm a thought leader in such and such. Well, maybe you have some really good thoughts, but um, you can't proclaim yourself a thought leader. It's, it's up to other people. Yeah, whether you're 22 or you're 72, that's always going to be true. Exactly. You know, it's just like I once I was doing some work in indigenous communities, and people were referring to elders. It took me a while to figure out it wasn't just someone who's older who's an elder. It's someone who's respected in the community. And so I said, how do you become an elder? This indigenous guy looked at me like I was, like, I was just like stupid. And it's like, it's not like a job that you apply for. It's just that you become considered an elder within your community. You can't proclaim it. You can't announce it. You become a woman or a man who is seen as an elder, who is respected. And I think that it, it would be nice to bring a little bit of that quality to social media. So we're not just proclaiming, but we're bringing um, at least, you know, getting a little bit away, if possible, from that, that selling ourselves to the world tone of voice. That is a big challenge. And given that, I'm really curious how you're approaching your social media strategy with promoting your new book. I, I'm supposed to have a strategy? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I just thought I'd spend too much time and doing this and that. No, no, you're right. I do have a publisher who, who does social media stuff and sets up interviews. So I'm, I'm lucky about that. But a lot of it is also on my own. So some of it is just plain hustling. I'm invited to give a talk in a certain city. I'll talk to my publicist at my publisher and say, I'm going to be in San Francisco on a certain date. Can you line up some local media? Is there a bookstore I can go into to talk to the bookstore managers? Things like that. I'll tweet that I'm going to be in a community. I spent a lot of time. And one of the things that is with, with my past books, it just wasn't there as much, but I'm spending a huge amount of time right now. And it's exciting and heady, but boy, it's exhausting just setting things up. You know, I'm going to be somewhere. Let's get, make sure there's books there. You know, I get an email, please come and speak here. And I'm in Baltimore and I get an email saying, can you speak at the UN later that day? And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this just made my life crazier, but let's do it. It's good in terms of getting the ideas out. But it also, it is, it is part of the world of you know, letting people know about a new book. And it speaks to one of the advantages of working through a publisher as opposed to self-publishing. Is this your first book that you've done through a publisher, or have you worked with a publisher for everything? No, I've worked. I think all my eight books have been uh, through a publisher, except for one uh, 
one mystery I wrote, which no one will ever read because I self-published it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a golf mystery of all things. But no, my, my other books have been published by both academic and non-academic publishers. I'm particularly lucky with this one, Counterpoint Press in the U.S. and House of Anansi in uh, Canada. Both put a lot of effort into supporting their writers. They're both, you know, sort of mid-sized publishers. Some of my books have been published by really biggies, you know, Penguin, for example, Oxford. I mean, these are great publishers. I love working with them, but they publish so much. They, they can't focus on individual books as much. So I'm really lucky that my publishers are able to put a lot into the individual books they publish, but are big enough to have some clout. So in, in terms of how you're organizing yourself and your time, do you work completely independently? Do you have a personal assistant? How do you structure your time and make sure that you get the things done that you want to get done? Sleep is sacrifice sometimes. No, and I, I have a speaking agent and another agency that does some of my talks. They luckily handle, increasingly handling all of my speaking work. So just the, you know, people coming to them, inquiring about availability, negotiating prices, which I always hated doing. I'm the worst money negotiator in the world. You know, I bargain people down, basically. I go, oh, well, that's going to be too much for you. So luckily, I've got someone looking after that and handling those relationships now. I've got my literary agent who looks after my book publishing and contracts and those things, publicists and someone who deals with events and, and just, you know, meeting some amazing people. I mean, for example, part of my book tour in March this year is sponsored by the men's clothing store Bonobos, which is both this online and sort of bricks and mortar store, sort of this hip clothing store. They're doing a whole bunch of work around men as allies with, with women. And so they're sponsoring book launch events in different cities. And so that's really cool. And so they're taking on the organizing work, which is amazing because it's a huge undertaking. I don't have a personal assistant. I wish I did. I, I have once or twice for short periods in my life. But I think part of working freelance for um, 30 odd years now, it just hasn't been, hasn't always been possible. I couldn't have afforded it for many years. So trying to sort of figure out how to work with a PA, I'm sure it'd be great if I could get there, but it would be tough. It'd be tough. I'm someone who, you know, is just booking a bunch of flights today. And rather than just calling a travel agent and saying, okay, figure it out, I'm like checking every different combination every different time and thinking, I think I over multitask. Well, between the speaking and the writing, I'm curious what your schedule looks like these days. These days, it's, it's pretty rough. I had signed up for a, a French course, and it looks like I may not uh, be going to a lot of the lessons just because I keep missing classes to go out of town. It's really exciting. You know, I'm getting a lot of calls doing interviews and not just, you know, short ones where you answer a few questions, but things in depth like this, which I just, I love, you know, I love long form journalism. But with everything, you know, you're, everything takes time and it takes setting up. And if it's a print interview, you know, often you get that back to read through and to suggest edits. It's really intense right now. But one of the things I just keep feeling, I'm not just promoting a book, I'm promoting ideas. And I'm trying to bring ideas to life that I, that I know, not just I think, but I really just know deep down are about making men's lives better, about making women's lives better, about creating a world that's going to be far better for our children and our grandchildren. And that's what I get the energy from. Having a sense of the importance of the work that you're doing, I can see where that would be incredibly motivational, especially during times like these. I'd love to you to tell my listeners how they can find you, how they can get in touch, and how they can find your writings. You can go to my website, michaelkaufman.com. That's spelled with one F and one N, so michaelkaufman.com. And on there, there's pages that have you know tons of blog articles that I've written over the years. One of my old books you can download for free and links to my other books. There's links on that site to my new book, The Time Has Come, 
Why Men Must Join the Gender Equality Revolution. That book is available at independent bookstores and book chains, the usual online suspects as well. I'm also uh, on Twitter at Gender EQ, EQ either for uh, emotional quotient or gender equality, but Gender EQ, Facebook page, LinkedIn. So all these different things, please reach out. So more importantly than just reaching out to me, you know, I, I say to people, reach out to those around you. Ideas of whether it's of gender justice, gender equality, or working for other forms of human rights, and making sure that we live in societies that are open inclusive, welcoming, diverse, working to end uh, the scourge of racism and homophobia, really building strong communities, strong workplaces. It's not going to happen yeah, just by reading a, a book or something like that, even if it's a really good book. Uh, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen by us reaching out to those around us, you know, to taking a risk. If we hear a comment or a joke that we know is just doesn't belong or is hurtful or offensive, Figure out a way to say something. Figure out a safe way for you and for others around to, to speak out. It might be through humor. It might be through saying something to that person privately. Whatever it takes, but speak out. Supporting changes in our workplaces, policies that create more welcoming, more flexible workplaces that support parents, that support diversity. Pushing for governmental change. Supporting candidates who support equal rights in all of its different forms. So we yeah, are taking action in our lives. And the thing that I'm, I know, and I see it out there all the time, is that the majority of men support these changes. And I think even many men who say, oh, no, no, I don't like feminism, I don't agree with this, you start talking about the issues and you realize maybe the, div the divide isn't as big as you might think. So let's you know, figure out ways to work together and work together even if we have differences on some issues to find where we can find common cause and that's going to strengthen us both as individuals and strengthen us as a society. Important words. And I'm glad to be able to help you share your message. Michael Kaufman, it's been a pleasure meeting you today. And thank you for being on Hack the Process. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the initiative that you have taken and the leadership that you're showing bringing these messages to the world. <laughs> thank you for noticing. Take good care. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>